0: Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Managing Editor and good mate, Richard.
0: Yes, I'm I'm still a good mate which is really good even though uh, I I do a few annoying things well uh, you stretch it sometimes but hey you're still a good friend <laughs> we're still working hard but um anyway uh, it's it's really great to be uh, to be back in we, we've got a couple of things going on uh have we've, we've what was it oh that's right there's a book we released mm-hmm. that's been keeping us really busy we'll talk some more about that but actually, this is one of my favourite uh, ideas and favourite guys talking about it, Ken Bonneau.
1: We're talking about uh, a new book he's done. Tell us a bit about, um, yes. about Ken. So uh, Dr. Ken Bernow, he's a uh, private practice in San Francisco Bay Area. So he's been doing psychotherapy and consultation for donkey's years. And he's been working on this idea of pro-being pride for a lot of years as well. And we've been publishing some of his work along the way. But he's had his head down and tail up for three and a half years now, um, wow. writing this uh, wonderful book. So we thought we'd better get him on the show and have a chat about it. Yep. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him and getting a bit uh, a bit
0: deeper into this whole
1: process. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, if you would like to support us in what we're doing here on our podcast, please come across to the science of psychotherapy.net and become part of the tribe um, sign up to our Academy. it's uh, 99 US dollars a year and we give you a, a, whole, a wealth of information um, about what it is to be human.
0: Oh, yes. There's hundreds of hours of uh, of learning materials in there, fast learning stuff going through. We've got videos, we've got documentaries, uh, quite a lot of things. We'll, we'll give you a certificate so you can take them for CEU points, which is um, uh, we know that that's not why we should learn, but it certainly is important and necessary mm-hmm. to have. So we do all that and we're expanding our CEU uh, certificates as, as quickly as we can. There's a process you have to go through to, to make it work. But um, really, what do you want to know? Come ask us. And we genuinely know that a lot of other people are are a lot more expensive than us. And someone said to me, why do you charge only, you know, 99 bucks, US 99? I said, because I think that we think that's how much you should reasonably pay for annual education. So it's not about cheap, expensive.
1: It's just what's a reasonable expense for someone doing a reasonable uh, professional work. Fantastic. So yeah, we'd love to have you on board. Come, come on and um, be part of the tribe and learn more about the science of us now. Yes, and you can, and
0: you can then, when you remember, get to see all of Ken's articles in the uh, Science of Psychotherapy magazine.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Beautiful. All right, let's go across to San Francisco and say hi to Ken. Ken, it's so good to have you back on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me again. Uh, It's wonderful to see you again, Ken.
0: As I tell you, I keep talking about your stuff constantly, so it's really good to see you again.
1: Good to see you too, Richard. Now, we've got you on the show because you've uh, released a book that you've been working on for many a year. Uh, Tell us the title.
2: The title is Shame, Pride, and Relational Trauma, Concepts, and Psychotherapy
1: wonderful now I was just asking you before you know how long did it take to write and uh, it's this is uh, this has been a long-term project for you
2: yeah I was calculating somewhere about three and a half almost four years but a lifetime before that so yeah, that, you, you get to calculate which one you want to
0: choose <laughs> uh, so it's it's interesting how uh, how these things emerge and emerge over time I, I remember one of the first books I wrote, uh, oh, oh, I guess I was in my mid-40s, and uh, my mum was a writer and she was doing it. She, she popped off into the bedroom. She brought out a, a letter I'd written to her when I was 25. God, help me why she keep keeping letters. And she opened it up and turned to a paragraph and said, oh, there's the beginning of that idea, uh, you know, beginning of that thinking. And and so but we know you've been... Um, despite the fact that it took you a while to put the words on paper, this is this is really a, a sort of a an expression of a very long frame of work for you, uh, you know, throughout your career.
2: Absolutely, and um, I think I was writing sort of a sort of a form of a blog forum in the in 2010. So that was where I started writing it, but just sort of trying out the ideas in uh-huh. writing with colleagues. But the the people who are interested in shame are usually not interested in just for intellectual reasons. They have to have some life experience that said, oh, this is a tough one. And I better figure this out both for me personally. And then if you're a therapist, you really want to figure it out as well, because... the way most people think about shame is as an emotion that comes and goes like all emotions and you get a rise and a fall. So, Oh my God, I feel so embarrassed and okay. I'd work through it and okay, we're good to go. But the kinds of shame that shows up in psychotherapy when you're working with people who've experienced relational trauma. So that includes abuse of all kinds and neglect and Sort of profound and pervasive failures to connect and bond for a caregiver with a child. Those kinds of people, while they may come in and have the experience of shame as an emotion, a kind of coming and a going, the the tougher nut to crack, if you will, is shame as a traumatic mind body state or shame states. Judith mm-hmm. Judith Herman, the trauma. Uh, expert coined that term and I was happy to borrow it. Mm. So that's what shows up in your office much more often. And that shame is like, um, it's not unlike a flashback, um, like a mind body state that takes over and that when the person is in that state doesn't appear they're budgeable and it certainly doesn't pass. They might have times where they're going along and they don't look like they're in that state at all. And then like a flashback, it hits them. And when they drop into it, that's the whole truth. Nothing but the truth always has been, always is, and always will be. And then some people live in a chronic state where they don't feel worthy of existing. There's actually a wonderful article called The Shame of Existing. This is much, much more profound. And you can imagine that both in Uh, when we're talking about traumatic states as an aspect of self that's um, been associated with shame or one's whole being, you can imagine that that's much more difficult to work. And when therapists say, oh, I need help with working with shame, that's what they're usually talking about. They're not usually talking about moments where a person feels embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Oh, I shouldn't have done it. I really regret being that way. And they get over it. That's not typically the shame that most people want help with.
0: Yeah. Yes. It, yes it, it it is that it's those emergent um, uh, behaviors and 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 sensations and, and activities that are, that occur where shame is actually what underpins it, what what underlies it. And uh, I mean, it's interesting. My daughter's uh, uh, doing a lot of work at the moment and writing a fabulous book. See what you made me do, which is we've talked to her about domestic violence and the uh, the presence of shame in the domestic violence. Uh, cases and of course we have it with the the people who are suffering the violence and which is more often than not women um and and sort of in the, the male and some of the females that 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 acted out that that comes from shame the uh the you know i i you know you are shaming me uh and so on and so forth so shame has got a pervasive impact on a lot of of Different things that emerge out. And so you could have several different things going on in the room, uh, different clients coming with different things, but you could find shame uh, as being uh, as certainly a strong element of what's going on underneath. Is that, is that sort of what we're talking about?
2: Yeah, I would agree with you 100%. Um, I'm hugely biased, but I think shame is lurking and it's shame does lurk by definition, by the word origin of shame is to cover. So shame doesn't usually come out. Most people don't come to therapy and say, I'm here because I want to work on shame. In fact, yeah. they almost never say that. In fact, many people are clearly suffering from the effects of shame. I, we have to come to name it together. It's not something that they would think of. But um, that means if you believe that, then that means various forms of anxiety related to shame. Like, I'm afraid to put myself out there or else I will be. They don't always finish the I will be, but if they did, it would be some version. Of, it would show how terribly defective or damaged or disgusting or something fundamentally wrong with me. So there's anxieties, there's depression, um, the kind of hopelessness and despair that goes with depression is a natural consequence of traumatic shame. Um, uh, what you were referring to as a kind of shame, rage or humiliation, rage reaction. You humiliate me. I will humiliate you. Um, that's not uncommon in people who are perpetrators of abuse. It's not uncommon in certain political realms that we can look around the world right now. So, um, uh, and, and when you think about that, like you ask yourself the question, well, why would shame be so ubiquitous? It's like fear. Shame and fear are really kind of two tributaries, uh, related tributaries of, that contribute to um, so-called psychopathology. And you sort of ask, well, wh- why would that be? Why would shame be so central? Well, uh, shame is fundamentally about the self. There's something fundamentally wrong with me as a person, not just I regret doing something. That's more associated with guilt. But shame is always about self in relation to other and self in relation to self. So if it's about self in relationship, other or with self, then how could it not be ubiquitous? Because, you know, we're always bringing ourselves into some kind of interaction, either how I'm viewing myself, that would be self with self, or how I'm viewing you or how you're viewing me or how I'm viewing you, viewing me, viewing me back and forth. So you would expect it to show up. And you would also expect it to show up because it's shame and pride are about valuation or devaluation. So um, we have a tendency as human beings, certainly as survival responses, but just generally to compare and contrast. How do I... Um, measure up or measure down, if you will. How do I, um, how am I looked at with esteem or how am I looked at as somehow less than? So these are sort of basic human qualities. So if you're dealing with self, other, and valuation and devaluation, you would expect shame and pride to show up. Uh, shame as a traumatic state tends to be uh, hard to read. You have to kind of know, like, oh, is this performance anxiety a reflection of? some fears of what will be exposed, you know, about me as a person, which would be closer to shame. Um, but pride is almost never talked about in the literature of psychotherapy and trauma. And when it's talked about, it tends to be talk, spoken about in the guise of narcissism, narcissistic pathology, what's called hubristic pride, hubris. Um, and it's rarely discussed in terms of that's a good thing. And you could say that's a cultural phenomenon, you know, pride goes before before the falls. So, you know. Um, um, it's considered one of the seven deadly sins. And there's, a, you know, the Greek myth of I- Icarus, you know, it's like, if you view that as an expression of hubris, like, you, you know, I'm I'm a teenager, and I'm gonna go as far as I can go. You tell me not to go to the sun, yeah, I'm going to go to the sun. And then you crash, you could view that as one expression of hubris and the punishments you get in this case, death, if you become too um, full of yourself, so to speak. But in terms of pride as a sense of there are different adaptive forms of pride. So the one that we most think of would be when you have a triumph or a success. So you worked at something hard and it, um, it really mattered to you. Um, I wrote a book and I worked hard at it and I feel good about it so I can feel some pride. And that's not arrogance. That's not one up. That's just a feeling of pleasure in accomplishing or mastering something. So a child who walks for the first time, they don't have the words, I'm proud but you can just look like "Ah, I did it because they've been seeing these big people walk around for a very long time. And it's like, that's not fair. I'm going to do that too. And when they achieve it, which is a lot of effort, you see the hard work they do to get to being able to walk. There's an an intrinsic uh, embodied sense of pride. Um, So that's good stuff. And if you um, think about that in psychotherapy, uh, particularly psychotherapy with relational trauma, It's hard, hard work. It's hard work, particularly on the part of the patient, but also the therapist who's trying to figure out how best to help them, uh, if you will, transform traumatic shame into adaptive pride. Um, then when you have these moments of success and there's sort of intermittent, hopefully throughout the work, there's a sense of accomplishment and there's a sense of pride and it then increases your ability to be motivated. Like I did that, so maybe I can do some more. We can do good work together. And it gives you a sense of hope and possibility. Um, And Pierre Jeunet talked about um, the act of triumph. And if you read some of his descriptions of what the act of triumph is, It's about pride. It's about the achievement and the sense of pride
1: in oneself and the work that follows. Where does um, the concept of self-esteem fit in with what you're talking about in terms of pride? So
2: um, a sense of self as valued or valuable, uh, as good or worthy of others' respect, that would be self-esteem or Mm -hmm. self-worth. There's a way, and I don't really know quite why it is, that the word self-esteem tends to not feel as um, full and embodied to me as the word pride or adaptive pride. It may just be particular to me, but um, often when people talk about self-esteem, they don't necessarily mention pride and shame. They talk about a self-esteem. So I'm not quite mm. sure how mm. it got divorced. I use the word shame and pride because it's about affect. It's about emotion, which is always including not only thoughts, feelings, embodiment, beliefs about the self, etc.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, mean, I was, cause I, I get problems with, uh, uh with language and semantics. Uh, uh, and I kind of talk about words that have been stolen from us or been uh, right. damaged. And in fact, we're having a, a lovely discussion about that in relation to what we do, the science. You know, we're, So we're trying to rediscuss uh, and get science away from being this reductionist thing and more into right. this expansive knowledge. And, and self-esteem... I think is one of those words because it's become very strongly related to what is happening outside of yourself so right, as you right. say it, it's a it's a judgmental thing i i i have high self-esteem if other people think i'm i'm okay but right. that sense of your saying the pride um that one can have pride that's totally uh, embraced around yourself and Uh, That certainly the the little child might sit there and say, "Hey, look, you know, you guys all walk now. I can walk. I'm really proud of myself." But they can equally just simply be excited and uh, and 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 then you bring in this word delight. I'm delighted in myself. Yeah, I'm uh, pleased that everybody loves me and thinks I'm terrific and is giving me buns and chocolates and (laughs) whatever it is because I walked. But just that 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 self engaged delight in self is, is the one that I find so beautiful that you talk about.
2: Right. So there's different, if you will, adaptive forms of pride, and the one I mentioned is, you know, sense of accomplishment and mastery, and Nathanson writes about that back in the early 90s. But there's some there's a term I developed, not, not the phenomenon, of course, but the term I developed, which I call Pro-Being Pride, P-R-O-Dash-Being-Pride, Um, and since, you know, you both are lovers of language, um, I, the reason that the the way I came up with that term was I looked up the word origin of proud. So the word origin of proud goes back to a Latinate form, um, and it's spelled P-R-O-D-E-S-S-E. So I don't know how they would say it, but it would be some version of Prodessa. That's, that's my translation. Okay. So if you break it down. P-R-O-D means for, F-O-R. And E-S-S-E means to be. So for being, or for one's essential nature. So what this means is this kind of pride is not an emotion. This is a mind-body state. We were talking about the traumatic mind-body state. This is an enduring, transformative mind-body state. And um, when I sort of thought about, well, how does one define being pro-being? The word I used is delight. And the, the best sort of example of this for me is when a child is born and they are welcomed into the family that they're welcomed, and not all children are sadly, but when the child is welcomed, um, they come into the world and the parents or caregivers or aunts, uncles, or whoever goes, ah! and that's just delight. And the child has done nothing. I mean, really, the child was born. They certainly haven't, you know, gotten their graduate degree in psychology and they don't have to. And when you say, well, tell me about your child, they say he or she is perfect. Well, come on, how could that be true? But they are because there's something about the human to human um, delight, joy, pleasure in one's essential being because, you know, quickly people start saying, well, he's like so-and-so and and he's like so-and-so. It reminds me of, and that's true, but if you really think about it, he or she is his or her unique self. So to celebrate that is to be for pro-being. And I believe There's an essential quality of being human where we are celebrating ourselves. Really, you could say it's like celebrating life, but it's celebrating our unique way of being alive. So, and pro-being has forms that are interrelational, right? (gasps) That's a very interrelational experience. But then there's the experience of um, a relationship with oneself where one takes a kind of intrinsic pleasure in one's unique way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's intra relational pro being. And then if you extend it outward and this will start sounding more spiritual, but I think it's basic to being human as well. Then there's a basic delight in being alive and connected with all that is in the world. And I call that extra relational pro being pride, but these are all expressions of a similar source And the reason this is so important is there is no more powerful antidote to the traumatic shame than pro-being. If a person experiences themselves as alive and embodied and taking pleasure in their unique self, or if they can receive the therapist experiencing them that way, even in small ways, they
0: cannot at that moment be in a traumatic shame state. It's not possible. Because we're spending a lot of money um, and, and effort Kind of buying that back, um, this <laughs> this sense with all these things, mm-hmm. because it's been lost somewhere in in the game. But but as you've been describing it there, this this uh, many ways we've been saying it. So I just wanted to jump in with that, Matt. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. So as I'm listening to these concepts, for me it begs the question: you know, how universal is this? Are we um, do you notice cultural differences around the globe when it comes to shame um, and pride?
2: Well, I'm I'm no cultural expert. So I can't answer that in definitive ways, but I can tell you it must be true because I do not think to use the example of the baby coming into the world. I certainly don't think that only happens, um, in United States (laughs) or in Australia, that simply can't be true. And I am certain if I had a conversation with someone from fill in the blank, Tibet or Botswana or wherever it might be. And I said, I try to describe something. They'd say, oh, we call that. Now, I have no idea what they would call that, but I, I don't think, I am 100% certain. Like I, that's, that's why I said, um, I came up with the term. I absolutely never came up with a phenomenon. And so
0: this can't be particular. This is the essence of um, uh, being able to be responsive. I mean, we think in systems. I mean, the idea in systems we have individual emergent uh, elements, and that's to do with culture and society, and so on, so on, so forth. Right. But there are there are fundamental elements um, yeah. which we can can kind of rely on uh, throughout uh, throughout all cultures, and and I th- I think this is is one yeah. of them. It emerges differently. Sure, the culture affects the way it's expressed. Yes. Um, but it is very fundamental. That's that's why we're so keen to talk about the book today right. and tell people to go out and get it.
2: Yeah. There's some research that looks at what's going on in utero. And um, there's some research. Um, uh, D- Damasio talks about, I think it's Damasio, talks about a proto-self. And there's some yes. other research that tries to describe, well, what is this? primal or proto-self. And one set of research, um, the, the first author's name is Delafield Butt, um, and the other name I absolutely can't pronounce. Uh, I think it's uh, from an Indian heritage, but it talks about motoric intentionality. So what that basically means is they're looking at the um, fetus, I think around four, six months, something like that. And they're noticing that its movement has intention. I have no idea how one researches this, but it has intention. So the the fetus wants to go from here to there and you can get a sense motorically that's what they intended to do. It's not random movement. And the assumption is that that motoric intentionality is an emerging property, if you will, of a proto-self. Right. So this is long before people say, oh, now he has a sense of self. This is clearly long before that. This is purely embodied who knows what's going on in their quote unquote mind. And if you think of that motoric intentionality, you would assume it's unique to every organism, not just human organisms. But how can I move exactly the way you move or she moved, including in utero? Okay, because we are genetically different. I would assume it's even some motoric differences in twins, you know, identical twins, but I have no idea. So if you believe there's an intention, um, there's something unique about the fetus that's demonstrable in the first months of life. Then, when, when, then celebrating that, taking pleasure in that, is pro-being. And I have no idea what the infant feels in utero, but I'm imagining
1: that's kind of cool <laughs> to be
2: able to yeah. move. So I don't know. I'm going to go with that's absolutely universal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now... Um if we can get really pragmatic. um, Oh, you know, where? <laughs> <laughs> It was going so
0: well, wasn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you talked about um, the fact that, you know, shame hides in the shadows, you know, it, it covers. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if we could just talk about some pra- <clears throat> practical aspects of identifying mm-hmm. um, shame and then, you know, sort of mm-hmm. the process of, uh, of what you've with. discovered to, yeah, work with it, Yeah, yeah
2: um, let's see. Um, you can discover shame by what's avoided. That's one thing. There's a covering over, like, why are we never talking about your anger? Why are we never talking about sex? Or why are we never talking about about your joy? Okay. So that would be one way to discover it by its absence. If you think of it in terms of dissociation, structural dissociation, or just the experience of being uh, not in contact with one's body. You should assume that there's an intimate relationship between shame and dissociation. I've written about this and it's complex, but you should assume that's somewhere there. Shame is a way to deaden, to take the life out of one's being. And dissociation has a similar effect, it either sort of leaves the body or splits. So this aspect of self is deemed acceptable and this aspect of self is deemed not or shame related. So these are another ways. Uh, Sometimes it shows up um, in this way. If you study um, shame as an emotion, but also as a trauma state, if you just look at the process, like how do you go from I'm doing okay to dropping into shame? So one way to look at that is if you think of going being okay as going on being, this is a Winnicottian term. So just like, I'm going on being, you and I are doing our thing. We're going on beating, being. And then something happens that interrupts that aliveness. It could be someone out of the blue calls me a horrible name. Or I did something, like I raised my hand and said something and, I, and they said, Really? Oh, really, that's what you had to say? Or sometimes it's about of a non-responsiveness. We tend to think of shame as what happens to someone. You little so-and-so, that's active shaming, but there's absence shaming, right? So you walk down the street and you see someone you haven't seen in a long time and you wave and they don't respond at all, okay? Some people might get mad about that. I tend to feel ashamed, like, oh, well, what's wrong with me? Like, what if, what if do I, I not that? matter? Now, it could be that they didn't even notice you. Mm. They could not notice you. Some people will say, didn't you see me? Because they, they were upset. Like, no. And they, I'm sure they're relieved. Like, really? You didn't see me? No. Um, but that non-responsiveness, which, of course, occurs when an infant or young child is quite young, if their parent is... um. um Depressed, or if the parent has their own dissociation, if the parent has uh, psychosis or any number of things, there's going to be a non responsiveness. So that's a long way of saying this. A lot of times, what happens when the person feels shame is they first have what's called a shock, it's a jolt. And instead of dropping down in terms of arousal into shame, the first response is a, is a rising. <gasps> what follows is a dropping. So sometimes when we think of shame, we tend to think of it in terms of that shutting down, you know, the energy dropping, the head turning, the whole body kind of going concave instead, in, instead of sort of outward. Which is more associated with aliveness or even pride. So we tend to think of it as that, you know, why are you so depressed? Well, I feel terrible about myself. Okay, that would be in a form of shame. But there's also the one that's sort of an anxious, that's the shock or the anticipated shock. If they see who I really am, then I have to make sure. So this would be a person who um you can't get a word in twice. which happens with me a lot but hopefully not always driven by shame um if you can't get a word in edgewise well that suggests there's some part of them that doesn't want you to see them feel them and know them in anticipation sometimes conscious sometimes not that when you quote really see them you will discover they have no yeah. worth there's something wrong with them yeah. they're not worthy of living, et cetera. So um, this is ways that I look for shame. I look for aspects of self that are deadened, covered over, dismissed, denied, or when a person talks about something they feel terrible about. Here's a real common one. People come into therapy, very common, and they say, what's wrong with me? Mm. Okay. Now, they come to therapy because, quote, they believe something is wrong with them. So the little uh, mantra I like, because that's often related to shame, that's that's not a, that's often the form of there's something wrong with me as a person. But they they put it in the form of a question. So I tease them. I say, is that a question or an indictment? When it's an indictment, when it's an indictment, that's shame, but they don't. It's such a common thing. Oh, I can't believe I did that. What's wrong with me? That is such a ubiquitous expression. You wouldn't typically think there's shame there. And there is. So that's this another is, way it
0: might show up. And, and this is what we talk about it in in, in our recent book, and also I did in one before with Ernie Rossi, but that people come into the room, they say, I'm not okay. Uh, and right. then, of course, you do work with them, and they then say, oh, I feel okay now, and move on. And there's something very important in that, is that we actually prefer to feel okay. We actually prefer to not be shamed. Be in the in state of shame or, or whatever it is, whether it's the shame state or whether it's biological issues, you know, your, your, your gut's going off and so therefore – and that, I think, is what is is even more interesting as a fundamental element, that, um, that having a sense of pride, having a sense of pro-being is actually a preferred state that we can move towards. And getting some kind of cognitive uh, perception of this – of course, is we certainly have all our inner you know, implicit forces working, but this cognitive perception is, it can be really beneficial in our efforts to uh, sustain and grow and engage ourselves. So, you know, body up and, you know, body to brain and brain to body. And so that's another reason why your work is so important because it enables us to really simply and clearly get a sense of what it is that's not okay and why it is that it's not okay and sort of some definition and verbalization of what is okay and what are some of the processes we can take to become okay so i'm i, I right. guess i'm 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 sort of flattering again but i i just mean it in the sense of this um uh i alluded to it but you've actually expanded and given form to what is not okay and what is okay which i think is really powerful and important
2: great right, great right.
0: um and
2: You know, I was just thinking about sort of how it shows up, how shame shows up. Well, there's also how pride shows up. Usually pride shows up in ways that are fairly obvious if you're thinking in terms of pride. Most people don't. But, you know, a person accomplished something and they feel really good about themselves. That's pride. They may not use that word, but that's what that is. Um, And that motivates them to keep going. Um, But if you think about pro-being pride, which, again, is more of a state than an emotion, uh, the way that shows up, well, it first shows up by the person being uniquely themselves, but that doesn't mean they're aware of the experience and of pro-being. So um, you have your particular way of movement. I have mine. Use certain expressions. I have mine. I guarantee you, as I got to know you, I'd say, I get a sense of who you are as a unique being. And, and then I would say, as I'm getting to know you, I might say, so I'm really getting a sense that you, um, and this could be my, not just being okay with their you being you, it could be my taking great pleasure or delighting in you being you simply because you are you, which is pretty darn cool, just like the infinite comes out of the room. It's like, I mean, why should it stop at infancy, right? Why should just say, well, you were cool at about birth.
1: It's been downhill
2: since then. Yeah. So, so then we're talking about some very kind of, could be very subtle things. So it could be a unique choice of words. It could be the way the person tw- uh, tilts their head. It could be they're going along and they're quite depressed and yet they have a moment, a glimmer of a spark or aliveness. So if that shows up in the room, which it always will, if you pay attention, it even can show up in the particular form in which they had to adapt to trauma. So they have a unique way of adapting. Not everyone adapts to the same quote unquote traumatic event the same way. So if you can think about even the so-called psychopathology as unique expression, even if it comes out in sort of a sort of twisted way of the person's being then you can take interest and pleasure in that and when you do um i often say to someone as i'm kind of getting a sense of who they are i said i describe something about them and they feel really seen and i said i bet if i interviewed your closest friends they would all say the same thing mm. and they always say yes now what am i know about them that all the friends know well i know about something about them as a person mm. and having a sense of you as a person, right? That you have these people, not just your therapist who quote unquote is paid to be nice, right? So so I'm genuinely interested in you as you are a unique way of being yourself. And you know, I'm genuinely interested because I'm not just saying the words I'm interested. I'm excited or I'm just present in a way that um, we're feeling each other. Right, we're we're in sync on a somehow in an energetic or embodied way. You can't fake that. You you can't, and a person who's on the receiving net who can receive it, some trauma survivors, it's harder for them to receive it because that sense of closeness or intimacy was experienced as resulting in abuse, neglect, abandonment. But if you can receive it, it's undeniable. And there's no
1: place for shame to be held in that place it's just none. Yeah. So so we're trying to identify threads of probing pride and and bringing that forward amplifying that is 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 that what we're trying to do? Yes, tell
2: you? absolutely. And if you if you sort of um feel this way about human beings, right? It's not something you read in the book, but as you hold it in your mind, you think well, yeah, people are pretty cool. I mean, not like you like them all, just they're just like interesting, right? Right? You are different than Richard. And I guarantee you, if people said, Richard, Matt, they work in the same place, right? So they're the same. I'm like, they're not, they're clearly not. And each of you has your own inequality. So I I will find things as I talk with both of you that I find interesting. And then I wanna know more. And I'm not doing this as a therapy technique. In fact, I have a little section of one of my chapters. It's about certain kind of attitudes or principles or concepts that guide the work. And my first one of those is there's no such thing as shame and pride psychotherapy. Mm. I'm like, well, how could that be? You wrote a whole book about it. There better be something about it. But there isn't in the sense of being seen, felt, known, recognized, um, to use, um, Bromberg's term recognition, you can't, you can't fake that. Um, I write a little bit in, um, my book about a person who goes to therapy and they they've dealt with a depression, a lot of the, for many years, and they're feeling really terrible as they enter the therapist's office and the therapist smiles. And the the therapist has a particular quality of smile. They just sort of beam. It's like their pro-being is just happy to see this person. Okay, It's hard to experience that kind of smile and still feel crappy about yourself. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't have something to work on, but who is this person that finds me delightful? He's not saying, oh, you're not that bad. No, he or she smiled at me how could that be if I'm feeling so horrible? So that's an example of such a small way. And trust me, if you ask that person years later, what do you remember about the therapist? Oh, there was that one time he or great she smile. smiled. Yeah, it's like really, yeah. I thought it was my great interpretation. Oh, it was a smile.
1: <laughs> that, that reminds me of some of the work that heart Math, um did on the, the radiation of our heart and how we uh-huh. have to be, you know, come from a, a, a an honest, you know, heartfelt. Mm. Um, because, because we electromagnetically radiate that, and that, that mm-hmm. modulates the other person's um, mm-hmm. brain waves, and so you can't fake it. You have to be. No, you can't fake uh, it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting because this because uh, uh, my
0: granddaughter's coming up to around five years of age i'm thinking of theory of mind i'm thinking of this development of uh, of the mental uh, capacity to understand the, the difference between myself and others and mm-hmm. i can see that happening to her and i'm just just looking in, in this idea of have you put any thoughts to that this nature of the the pro-being is it amplified or is it does it f- create become formulated uh, in around this has it got some relationship to theory of mind at all Okay, so you had asked me a question I never thought of, so I'll have to
2: play with that one. So I would say, okay, here's what I would say. Um, When people talk about shame, um, the developmental researchers, not all, of course, but many of the developmental researchers say, well, it comes online about somewhere between two and three. It comes online when the person has, quote unquote, self-consciousness. And self-consciousness is closer to self-other consciousness. Oh, you're looking at me in a particular way, so therefore, in some way, I am the you who views me that way, or this kind of a um, reflecting back, like mirrors. Okay, so you'd say, well, if, and in fact, self-conscious emotions include. Uh, Shame and pride and guilt. That's Mm -hmm. usually the categories of self-conscious emotion. So the developmental researchers, these particular ones that I'm mentioning, say somewhere between two and three, then that might relate to, okay, I get a sense that you have a mind. I get a sense that because, you know, you could say, well, at the very young age, the child thinks their mind and my mind is the same. So if you look at me negatively, then I am. <laughs> That's the whole story. Not you're in a bad mood or you, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. So theory of mind gets more complex, you know, as you start thinking about, is it an accurate reading of the other person's mind? Mm-hmm. But if you think about this at the more organismic level, right, um, and Colin Trevartan writes about shame and pride in the first year of life. Is a wonderful quote about this. It's like, well, how can that be? Well, it fits if you think of it more in terms of one's being, not one's cognition. So the developmental researchers say later, theory of mind, I would assume, develops, quote, later. And this experience of self as valued or devalued, self as worthy of being alive or not worthy of being alive, that has to come much earlier. Yeah, And that yeah. self is not worded. So that's why you quote, it's harder to research because how do you research what can't be worded? Although there's some research that shows in the first year of life, um, if a person, a baby could do something, like get a, a, you know, they do a thing where they look a certain place and the thing swirls around them when they look, you know, these very young infant research. Well, let's say the baby make the thing swirls, pretty cool. So now I have some way of affecting the world, that's pride. Again, implicitly, if you prevent them from doing it, like they look and the thing doesn't swirl, even though you, they looked in the right spot, this is what happened. They go like this. Yes, and we're talking the first year of life. So, is that shame? I'm going to say yes.
0: I'm, who would know? But I would say yes. It's yeah. it's, it's interesting. I mean, that development of uh, uh, quite I quite a um, grasp onto a lot of what you're saying. That that early, that non-conscious, that non-verbal state, the the uh uh the, you know the theory of mind change is not something like a switch it, it, uh and i've always thought it it really begins or in that Around two, as language begins to emerge, and then eventually, uh, I, like I, I noticed, my my little granddaughter, she would be uh, trepidatious about things that she was unsure of, and I would think that was part of shame and pride. I don't know whether I'll I'll, I'll do it a sense of self, but now mm-hmm. she's expressing an interesting thing where she's moving into the the area of um, being someone that is that is better than or less than. Um, so suddenly, we find uh, if she loses a game, she, she's having reactions now that are different than she had uh, a little while ago. So right. it's it's really interesting to watch these, and and uh, I'm going to make sure my daughter has a little look at this this. Um, presentation because it's really important in in getting a grasp of what we're working with it's not about behaviors it's about these uh, although they're, they're important of course and you can teach some right. of those but what's the underpinnings that we're allowing to um right to, to develop right right and you know
2: i was just thinking um you know the tronics uh still face paradigm i was thinking of
0: him too yeah
2: Where an infant, usually they're like young, nine months, 12 months, whatever. And they come in with the parent. Usually it's the mother in these research products that I've seen. And they have presumably a secure attachment. So they have a really good bond. And you watch these little interactions and they're just like adorable, right? So the mother does this and the baby does that. And you have this little dance going and it's it's mostly nonverbal. And if they make words, it's mostly, you know, like motherese, oh, ah, he, he. The baby goes, ah, ha, does the same thing in their way, right? And so there's not a lot of words, but there's a lot of emotion and embodiment and energy, right? And so you're doing great. And then the researcher says, mom goes still face. So then the mother turns away and comes back still. hmm it's torture. If you watch it, I experience it as torture. In fact, I don't I think, while you're doing this research. It's really painful to watch. Yeah, please stop. Um, yeah. And if you watch what happens, first of all, the baby tries to do what it always did, He or she did. Well, that's not working. Well, so then baby gets more aggressive. That's not working. So anger is not working. Then the baby gets frustrated and confused and almost disorganized. That's not working. And what eventually happens is the baby collapses. Mm. Now, one could ima- let's just imagine that your mother or father was repeatedly non-responsive. Okay, mm. I'm not talking about abusive. I'm talking about non-responsive. I know people who've experienced um, loss in their lives. No one talked about the loss. There was no going to a funeral. There was no you must miss your special friend or your sibling or your dog there's none of that and so you could think of that as a repeated daily experience of still face mm. right i've had people they they say i came home from school what happened nothing what do you mean what happened well my mom was on the phone chatting my father later came home and read the newspaper. Okay, this is not abuse, but yeah. the child comes to believe they don't matter. How do you know you matter? Because you walk into the room and someone says, hey, why? Wow, I didn't do anything. Yeah, you did, you walked into the room. Hey, how was your day? Sometimes you ask, how was your day? And what you're really saying is, tell me about you.
1: Mm.
2: How did it go? How'd that test go? What's going on with Joey, who was not nice to you yesterday? How are you? What matters to you? That's basic to being human and taking interest in someone. You don't have that. You're walking shame without knowing it. You'd have no idea. And these are the people when they say, tell me about your childhood." They say, well, what's to tell? Well, what happened? Mm. You know, you know, like, uh, um, you know, regular family.
0: Usual stuff.
2: Uh, Usual stuff. You know, these are yeah. people in the attachment research. They say they don't have a coherent narrative. Well, they almost have don't have a narrative. There's like, it's not even incoherent. It's sort of like it's not there. Those are the people who are living with the effects of shame, often without any awareness. All you, what you, what they might express is feeling somewhat detached. Mm. Um, you know, I have a hard time getting motivated. Um, um, it's hard to really feel engaged you know i do what i do but you know it doesn't really matter does it i mean really think about it existentially does it really matter
1: yeah that's, that ambivalent
2: thing yeah that yeah mm. or more the absence of and the absence yeah the absence yeah so that would be to me an expression of the shame that's a consequence of not being responded to just in the most basic of ways
1: Wow, this is such important subtleties to keep in mind. I mean we we probably always you know think about the obvious traumas, but uh you know we're in recent times where parents are often caught uh, up in social media and just generally disengaged. Uh, I remember you know watching a, a video of a mother I think Louis Cosolino was showing us that Richard yeah um, and the uh, yeah. mother was just totally disengaged from the baby um yeah. you know on on her phone. And, uh, this is pervasive, right. um, so yeah, try
0: Ed, Ed Tronic and Lou are going to be in Australia in a, a, towards the end of the year. So, uh, people might, the childhood foundation, they might go have a, you
2: should, you should one. ask Tronic if, the, if I remember this research correctly, cause I heard him present once and I was like, this is unbelievable. So ask him if this is true. Um, he talked about the, the child who experienced the, the, uh, situation where the mother, the still face. And um, then the child comes back, you know, whatever, nine months later or a year later, and they, they monitor cortisol levels. And they, the cortisol level seems to increase when they approach the uh, research um, room. And Mm. as though they had, you know, something, if not traumatic, something really quite disturbing that their bodies remember. Now, that may be a wonderful, fanciful memory of mine,
0: so you you can ask him as... I'll I'll, I'll try to do it privately, the big question.
1: Did you you create Room 101? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Don't go there.
0: (laughs) I just want to chime a little bell on on, uh, uh, an important word, which is really important to me, is this... um, word you said there uh, kind of um, uh, responsiveness yes that this is so much in fact i'm going to go and do some phd work on on this in in therapy and in process but but we we we've learned how to to uh, sort of center people to client centered which is really give give them some level of importance but it's this but it is this fabulous what we need is responsiveness we want we want to walk into a space and for our energy to have uh, an interaction for us to get the sense that we are there and, uh, you know, we see so many behaviours. I mean, one of my favourite behaviours of, of, of young kids around seven or eight, nine years old and they've just got a push bike and they will park the, bar- the bike in the doorway and people will say, oh, these kids are so rude and they're so thoughtless and everything else. And I go, to an extent, but they're also saying, I'm here. You have to notice me. You may not see me because I'm small, but you can't get past my bike, so you'll have to get cranky with me or something of that. So this um, – and and we'll we'll take negative responsiveness. We'll take being yelled at by our parents uh, rather than having them um, – you know, the the, the wonderful story of the kid whose mother had three jobs and he was just impossible behaviour – And eventually they got down and the little kid said, well, if I'm impossible, mum has to come to school. She has to talk to me. She has to punish me. Um, Otherwise, if I'm good, she goes to bed and goes to sleep. And so they just arranged a simple bit of response. I mean, this whole thing where you
2: talk about, you know, kids trying to get attention. It's like it almost yeah. becomes cliche, like, oh, you're just trying to get attention. Yeah, you're trying to get attention. I want to know that I exist and that I yeah. matter. So we're quote, all seeking attention. And I was thinking about that in. bike. Yeah, I was thinking about the bike, right? So just imagine the kids got the bike right across the doorway and the parent comes home. And you know, I understand parents tired, so I'm not expecting parents to do this, but just imagine the parent comes home and says. Hey, Joey, this is a really cool bike. This is like an amazing bike. And I really like the way you have it right in front of the doorways. I can't miss it. I'm having an idea that you've had some adventures on this bike lately. Did you have any adventures today on your bike? Now, obviously, come on, we're not, I don't expect people to always respond that way, but could you imagine responding that way? The kid be like, well, actually I did. I I crashed my bike. Oh, oh, that's my little dented there. Yeah, dad, can you help me? Or mom, can you help me fix it? Well, I'm so glad Then you told me. I wouldn't have known you had an accident, right? So this is like we're going about the bike, but the implicit message is, if the bike matters to you, the bike matters to me because you
0: matter. So now we're back to um, taking the light. Yeah and that's a great possibility you know that 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 we often miss because we're trying to be ordered rather than responsive so i just can't think of uh uh of anything um i you mean know, i i talk about the light that being delighted. Uh, you know i showed someone my book the other day uh the, the new book it was really great and they said oh i couldn't read this um you know this this be so they were expressing their shame instead of Having some delight in my delight that i produced the well, book. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was, and I'm thinking of you again. I think, oh God, I, I got to tell Ken that because, <laughs> but I really can't recommend um, uh, this stronger or, or more highly as a way of um, you know you've done so much of the work to help us uh, get a grasp at an understanding and this cognitive perception of these things that are going on deep within us from a very from. Well, now we, we see potentially in utero. So uh, mm. please, everybody, go out and, uh, and and get a look at this stuff. Coming to the Science of Psychotherapy, we've got some fabulous articles. Uh, if you just want to read something shorter from Ken, uh, th- this is something that um, uh, means a lot to me. And uh, yeah. I think it will mean a lot to others, to Matt and me.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And once again, Ken, congratulations on the Thank book. You. Any final words before we wrap this up?
2: This is, this is uh, here's my final words. It actually has to do with you guys. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> See, he got a little worried. A little, That's right, <laughs> straight <a> little, away. <laughs> I'm not going to make a big deal about it, but maybe, maybe after we could talk, Richard. But but this is it has to do with you guys, because um, I, I had read uh, what was then the neuropsychotherapist before I even made any contact with you. And, um, I don't know when it was that I first sent something to you, but trust me, I was nervous and I was nervous because, because this is important to me. I'm writing about something that is important to me, not just as a therapist, but a person. So I, anyone who cares about their writing knows they're putting themselves out there, not just their writing, something essential about who they are. So I'm putting myself out there and I have no idea whether you'll even consider it much less publish it. And you guys have been great. You have been very supportive of things that I've written. You've taken interest in it. You made them look really good on a page with cool pictures (laughs) of that that I would never have come up with. And, and um, as a result, I've built my own confidence. So you could say I felt some more pride and even sort of the the pleasure that I take in being a writer. So it helped me with the initial doubts and probably lingering shame of, is there something about my writing or my ideas that will be, you know, Mm. not not necessarily criticized, just like, "Mm, well, whatever. Um, Or... Is there genuine interest? Um, you guys have always shown interest. So that's built a sense of my confidence as a writer. And um, I'm grateful for that. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, this is the interpersonal thing. We, we, we need... We need each other and we value from each other. Yeah, very true.
1: I think you know, because firstly we're empathic humans, secondly we're psychotherapists, and then thirdly we're publishers. So you know
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a trifecta.
1: <laughs> yes. That's
0: anyway, right. we'll we'll have to wind it up now. Uh yeah. Matt, as, as glorious, we could go on forever. But uh, uh Ken, thank you so much uh for taking the time with us again and uh, for taking the time to put these words down on paper so you can uh people can share in the in, in the joy of this and really? take delight. In the, in, the, in the whole thing. Thank you. I Thanks appreciate. so much, Ken. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, uh, never disappointing. Uh, I love the way just gently talking through this stuff, which is so in-depth, which is so yeah. meaningful, and yet he's just Clarified. It takes time. He's done. He's mm-hmm. done. his more than his ten thousand hours, <laughs> and exactly. delivering that benefit to us. I, I, I just got uh, a lot out of it. And actually, I've got to talk to him some more about some of the other stuff I'm doing because
1: I, I think he's got some really other helpful things uh, for me. So, lovely yep. guy. Really important stuff. So, just a reminder: the book is Shame, Pride, and Relational Trauma: Concepts and Psychotherapy, and you'll find that everywhere. Um, that they sell books. It's been wonderful once again. Oh, before we leave, um, just a reminder to everyone that we have our own book released just recently, The Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy. So if you'd like to support us, please go out and check that one out. And also... Once again, you know, become a member of the science of psychotherapy.net That's our academy site uh, where you can join us as we go on this journey of learning more about what it is to be human and how to help one another. And uh, what we call the 21st
0: century therapist, that therapist that knows about in order to help and be
1: attuned to their client. Absolutely. Well, thanks once again for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.